0: Let's start with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, last session. The problem with, with that, all of a sudden I start remembering all the things I wanted to explain. <laughs> when I was teaching, it would happen as, as the semester would go on, life would drag until all of a sudden the last week of the semester, and you have to cover 400 years, you know, and you just start. I took some classes like that, and, and uh, like world history classes, and we never got beyond World War I. <laughs> you know, so the whole 20th century was because we got bogged down in the French Revolution, and stuff like that. Uh, I mentioned, um, you know, we're talking about God, that that there are lots of artist conceptions of God, and some help and some don't. Uh, What I would like to mention on that is, if any of those help, feel perfectly free to use them. I mean, that's what artist conceptions are for. And if you visualize God as being male or female and that works for you, sensational. Believe me, God understands, you know. And if you like burning bushes, or if you like seeing God as light, or if you like looking at God as a color, whatever works there is fine for you. But don't be surprised if some kinds of art turn some people off. Like I find it, uh, there, there's an Italian Renaissance style where there are these awfully fat chubby baby Jesuses that just kind of nauseate me. And um, uh, there's, and also, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesuses do nothing for me. I just think you're a Swede painted that, you know. Um, there's a Christmas card I might send out once if I can find it. It's, uh, it is a very chubby, fat, Swedish-looking Jesus with rosy cheeks, but, you know, a little manger there with happy little lambs, and uh, squilly writing all over it. And, and the front of the card, it, 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 the card is so sweet and sugary that if you looked at it very long, you'd probably get diabetes. But it says, uh, uh, May the baby Jesus, in all this, you know, lammy fleecy stuff, may the baby Jesus, and then you open the card up and it says, open your, shut your mouth and open your mind. That's what it says. I think that's a wonderful Christmas card, and one day I'm going to send it out to some people. (laughs) Um, There's another one. and it's it's used in Catholic circles frequently for the sacred heart, which is a, a whole special kind of devotion in Catholicism and it's I think it's a seventeenth century Portuguese artist and it's a picture of Jesus with very long hair and very elaborate hands and the sacred heart wearing these green and red robes. And if you look at it, it looks odd. And it is odd because at this time the art a lot of artists were trying to convey the picture that Jesus was very gentle and meek, you see. And they know that a man can't be that. So the model that the artist used was his mistress and put a beard on her. And so if you look at it close, you realize it's a woman with a beard, you know, and because well, I've never found that terribly attractive. Uh, and I thought, I concluded that I had a problem with Jesus. You know? And I didn't, I had a problem with that artist. The, uh, uh, portrait in my I do have a portrait of God in my room or a photograph of God in my room and I have a smaller version of it that I'll pass around, but I want this back it's, it's by a photographer named Imogen Cunningham and it's a photograph of her father taken at the age of 90 and what I like about it is his face looks slightly confused and he's wearing great pants and it's clear to me that it's probably a good image of God um, let me it's just what I like You know, this is a non-threatening God, you know, (laughs) someone you can talk to. All right. Let me try talking a bit about amends. What are we talking about? The step says, eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. How to understand it? All right, again, this is not an attempt to beat ourselves up. This is not an exercise in pain and anguish. This is a step towards liberation. Believe me. To understand it, I'd like to suggest you take a look at the Buddha for a moment. And what the Buddha would say is that when the world began, everything was in balance and harmony. However, self-will run riot enters the picture. And things get knocked out of harmony. And instead of harmony, you have... Cacophony. Wonderful word. Uh, and everything is, you know, askew. All right. What are amends? Amends are an attempt to restore harmony. It's an attempt to restore the balance. And that's what amends are. If you've done damage, try to heal. Try to repair. If you've taken something, return it. If you have wounded someone, try to heal. You know, it's that kind of thing, to get things back into a... Harmony. So you make a list of all persons you would harm. Examples. Um, say that uh, your family is pretty high on the list. What can you do to make amends? Well, I should take them out to dinner a lot. Well, I don't know. I think uh, one way of making amends is making sure that these days you're sober. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, fulfilling your responsibilities, paying your bills. I think that's the way of making amends. One of my problems, or one of my great gifts after a couple of social drinks is I become an expert on other people's defects of character. And I might only know them for five minutes, but boy, can I read their list. And I would do that. Uh, I know that shocks you, but I would <laughs> announce to whole rooms full of people, other people's problems. And um, as a way of making amends, what I've had to do is, when possible, speak good about people. Be supportive of people. Keep my mouth shut when I get extraordinarily vicious. And I found cold sober, I can be extraordinarily vicious. That was a real shock to me. Because I thought, oh, I said that because I was drinking. No, I said that because I thought that, you know. <laughs> um, and, and learning how to be more positive. And it, it felt awful at first. Because it was a new thing. Um, if you were a thief. Give back what you stole. Well, I can't remember everything. Well, then how's this as a suggestion? Uh, First of all, an example. One of the first people I ever sponsored was a student of mine. His name was Michael, and he was 17 years old. And Michael came into the program in Los Angeles, and Michael worked at a gas station and used to borrow money all the time. Five dollars here, ten dollars there. But he did it over a period of months, and it added up to a lot of money. For a kid, it was hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Well, he got sober and he had to return the money. Problem number one, his boss didn't know it was gone.
1: <laughs>
0: Problem number two, if he gave it to his boss, you know, he'd be, there was a good chance he'd be fired. So what he did, what we decided, was that uh, we figured out, right, how much do you think you owe? And he made a good, he said, like right, $500 is what I owe. So he would get paid every two weeks, and when he would get paid, he would you know, cash his check and take a $10 bill, which he could afford, it was affordable, and he would put it in a plain envelope and type the guy's address on it and mail it to him with no return address, with no explanation, so that every other Monday in the mail, this guy would get a $10 bill. drove him crazy.
1: <laughs>
0: but what Michael was doing was restoring the balance. And he did that over a long period of time, and then he joined the Marines. I thought I was a failure as a sponsor. (laughs) Uh, And he told me they even have meetings at Camp Pendleton, you know, which I was glad to know. Um, What else is true? Say you owe a lot of money to a lot of different people, and you have no idea who they were because it was in Chicago 20 years ago, and you know, what are you going to do? Well, how is this for a suggestion? Make a good, honest estimate on what you owe. And then look around your community for an agency that could desperately stand an extra 20 bucks a month, you know? That extra 20 bucks keeps some places open. Like what? Well, look for places dealing with the elderly or battered children or kids with cancer. You know, there are lots of agencies in this day of volunteerism when federal and state money is being cut left and right, but have to close its doors unless local supporters come to their aid. This is an area... I think the amend step is potentially a tremendously important step to helping the community. Restoring the balance. Now, in this step, I think this is the first step where the use of a sponsor is absolutely crucial. The others, I think, sponsors may be helpful, but this one is crucial. Because you're making judgments here not only about yourself, but about other people's lives in making these amends. And with people I'm involved with, I'm a lousy judge. I need to have some... Who should you choose as a sponsor? Find someone who has both feet on the ground. You do not need a sponsor with brilliant insights. You need a sponsor who's practical. At least I sure do. I also need a sponsor who doesn't panic easily. (laughs) That's one of my requirements. Um, And I also have chosen as my sponsor someone who is sicker than I am. (laughs) because that way I never feel they're superior to me you know so I I some obviously sicker than I am and I take with myself. and I tell them the reason I've chosen you for my sponsor is you're the sickest person in the room you don't panic and you have both feet on the ground now <laughs> and I can fall in love with someone like that very easily so that's how Terry got to be my sponsor um, let me see um, yeah, because some of this, like, you're married, you've been married for, you know, 209 years, and as part of your amends, you want to have an honest relationship with your wife for the first time in years. So, uh, you want to uh, let her know everything that happened when you were drinking, and you want to let her know that uh, five years ago you had an affair with her sister or brother, you know. And um, I just declare the heirs. That's not uh, making amends. That's declaring war. And a lot of times, see, some of us are so self-destructive we can't see that, and that's why a sponsor is crucial—a good, practical, down-to-earth sponsor. Um, Who? One man in Berkeley. One of the nicest things I've—I've can. All right. Well, example. You owe a lot of amends to your kids, and your kids would rather not see you in this lifetime. What can you do? Well, check out Children's Hospital if you got one.
1: (coughs) you know,
0: or big brothers, or big sisters. Uh, there might be something you can do there that helps a kid. Or you owe a lot of amends to your parents, and your parents have passed over. You don't know where they are. I mean, you know, they're over there somewhere, but you can't make a direct amends to them. What can you do? Well, one guy in Berkeley does this remarkable thing It's impressed me tremendously, and he never told anyone about it until I asked him directly. But I noticed he lived down the street from me, and... Um, There was this old man that lived not far from us, and every week he'd stop by the old man's house and pick up the shopping list and go out and do the guy's shopping and drop it by. And the old guy was, I mean, he was in his 70s or 80s, and he could get around, and he was compassed, and he was okay. But he was an old guy who was a little frail, and I asked him, is this, you know, a relative? And he said, no, not at all. I I really never knew him, uh, but I had to make a lot of amends to my father. And, uh... My father's dead and has been dead for years. And a way of making amends is I decided I would do something helpful to an older person. And so I've been doing this guy shopping for the last three years as a way of making amends. And I think this didn't occur to him, it occurred to this guy's sponsor. And I think this guy's sponsor has a brilliant insight into what amends are all about. It's restoring the balance. Some of us think that uh, making amends is writing, you know, just going up to someone and saying, Jim, sorry. Well, I don't think that's always quite enough because some balance needs to get restored sometime. And when significant damage has been done, uh, maybe you got some work ahead of you to make amends, uh, like regularly telling the truth or helping out in the community somewhere, uh, being of service. I don't think we get sober for ourselves. I think we get get sober to be of service to our community, to our sisters and brothers, be they alcoholic or non-alcoholic. God's grace does not stop with us. God's grace goes through us to others. And if we're only here so I get well and screw you, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And the best way you have of guaranteeing your sobriety is by giving it away. And that might mean working... You know, with with some place, once a month or once a week, where people are in need. Seems to me. Step ten, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I think the most significant uh, word in that step is the word when, not if. When we were wrong. Some of us think that sobriety means infallibility. It doesn't. We're wrong about lots of things, lots of times. And to be able to promptly admit that, you'll surprise all your friends. Step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Hmm... want to say a couple of things about prayer. (coughs) Prayer is communication. Uh, Sometimes prayer can be very chatty. It's like the model I use is two friends talking. Uh, Sometimes you get together with a friend and you talk till four in the morning about everything imaginable. Other times you might drive from here to LA with a friend in a car and in the course of, you know, Hours and hours of driving, you might exchange five words. Both of those are communication. Silence can be communication. You communicate in lots of ways. But in terms of prayer, in in communicating with God, I I mentioned the other night that a lot of prayer, I think, is quiet. Prayer can be conversational. Prayer can also be learning how to listen. One of the lines from somewhere in, in the Hebrew Scriptures Reads, be still and know that I am God. You know, just to be still. But the mind does all kinds of stuff, as you know. And, and a couple of suggestions on prayer. Number one, sometimes um, when we're in prayer or just, you know, up and around in life, we feel sensational. Spiritually great. The spiritual authors call this consolation. And it's one of the movements of the soul. Consolation. <clears throat> In fact, some of the spiritual writers will maintain that even when, for instance, you pray or, or you're at a moment of, of listening to music or watching the sunset and you suddenly find yourself crying, that's also consolation, because it is a it, it's, somehow it, it feels real good to cry, you know, just to let all... Consolation is all... But there's another movement of the soul in terms of prayer and spirituality, which is called desolation, and that's when you don't feel good. When you pray, you don't feel close. You feel alienated, distant, you don't feel God there at all. You feel abandoned, or you feel wrong, or you feel bored, or you feel dumb. That's all desolation. Well, what does that mean? It's just another movement of the soul. It doesn't mean you're bad, it doesn't mean you're wrong, it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Souls go from consolation to desolation on a regular basis. That's the movement. Well, what should you do? Keep on doing what you're doing. Show up. Do what's in front of you. Pay your bills. You know? Spend the time. Desolation does not mean stop praying. Desolation means make sure you spend the time you need in prayer, even if it doesn't feel real good. Teresa of Avila, who was no slouch. um, 16th century Spain... She she says that when she began prayer, she entered a world of desolation, which remained with her for 23 years. 23 years, non-stop, of desolation. Well, what did she do? She kept showing up. And at the end of those 23 years... There were tremendous breakthroughs and tremendous spiritual growth and all kinds of things happened in terms of mystical prayer. And in, in, in the Roman Catholic Church, Teresa is considered to be a teacher of prayer. And there are all kinds of books that Teresa of Avila writes on all kinds of stuff in, in, you know, the 17th, 16th century terminology from, from Spain, from her point of view. But a lot of what she says is real, real accurate in terms of consolation and desolation. Um, well, what should you do with prayer? I think we need to pray regularly. Does that mean every day or once a week? <laughs> regularly. You know, what works for you? Um, and when you pray, a couple of rules of thumb. Number one, the body is real important. You know, um, Our culture doesn't quite believe that because we think prayer is all in the mind, you know. But a body is real important, so your body position is real important. If praying on your knees (coughs) helps, use it. Drives me crazy. So I rarely do it. Occasionally, but rarely. Well, how else can you pray? You can pray standing. You can pray sitting. You can pray lying on the floor, although that is a dangerous position (laughs) because you fall asleep very quickly. you can pray running. A fellow I know runs, you know, five miles every day, and he starts his prayer when he's hit the third mile because he finally is able to pray. And his prayer is very simple. He, he prays, God help me. God help me. And, and it, he's in connection. All right, so you start to pray. Now, what do you like? Body position. Let's try sitting, you know, which is my favorite. Feet on the floor. That means legs uncrossed, by the way. Um... And and back straight and palms up. What have you done? Well, physically, you have put yourself in a position to receive. That's what you've done. You're open physically. If you pray like this a lot, you're blocking just a little. So, and then what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is become aware of the fact that you're not alone in the room. That God is present somehow, but I don't feel, God, perfectly all right. Sometimes you will, and sometimes you won't, but you come to believe that God's present in the room. That's God's job, to be present in the room. (coughs) Then what do you do? Breathe real deep. Five, six, eight times. Real deep and slow, just to get there. And you might just want to keep the deep breathing going, what do you do for I mean, how long should you pray well start small and get big start saying you know every day i'm going to pray for five minutes and then when you've done that for a while you might expand it to 10 and 15. i mean some of us if you're at all a junkie and a drunk like i and you think i need an hour a day you know i can't start with an hour a day i start with a little time just to have conscious contact with god Like the breathing, sitting in for five minutes, breathing real deep and real slow. And what's going on in my mind? That God's breath, the Spirit of God comes in and the Spirit of God goes out. Just to know that. And when my mind starts thinking about wild orgies and eating quarts of Hershey syrup, uh, I refocus, those are always connected, I always, (laughs) I refocus on the breathing. Well, I'm breathing. So you you need a focus. This is why in, in Catholicism people prayed the Rosary for such a long time, uh, because you you had something to focus on, namely your fingers on the beads. And when your mind the rosary, you weren't supposed to think about every word. Hail Mary, full of grace. What it starts a rhythm. Hail Mary, full of grace, and Hail Mary, full of grace. And what it does is it quiets you down, and you're finally able to listen. The rosary was used for centuries before Valium was invented
1: <laughs> to
0: get people to sleep, you know? And if, you know, you're looking, you're tired of your Valium and want to find something that's repetitive and puts you out, you might want to take the practice up again. If The Buddhists use the prayer wheel. And what, it's repetitive, it just goes and it gets you, it calms you down enough to listen. Listen to what? You know? Well, I'll tell you about that in a second. But there's another form of prayer, and it's called, in the classical sense, Lectio Divina, or divine reading. And usually what it would be would be reading Scripture, but it could be reading anything. And what you do here, for is you say, all right, now, for the next ten minutes... I'm going to consciously try prayer. So, I've got a position. I've breathed a couple of times real deep and slow, so I get there. I'm aware of the fact that God's in the room. And what I'm going to do is read for a while. What are you going to read? Well, let's try anything. Let's try, um, oh, something from uh, Matthew. And and what you do on this is you read real slow for ten minutes. You have to try a line like... Uh, Ask and you will receive. Breathe real deep a couple of times. Think about the lines. Does it mean anything to you? Ask. Maybe that will trigger all kinds of stuff for you. Things you need to ask for, things you've received, gratitude, all. And that one line, as you keep, you know, and you get distracted, and you're thinking about the Hershey syrup, you go back and read the line again, ask and you will receive. And you go back to real slow breathing and thinking about it, you get distracted again, you start thinking about tomorrow, it's Monday, ah. And then you go back, Ask, ah, and you're refocusing. Now in that ten minutes, you might spend on that whole line. That's fine, this is not a race. or what you might do is get to the end of the page you know you find that that asking you receive and blank means nothing to me try the next line seek and you will find blank knock and it will be open to you blank perfectly okay I mean that you're in desolation that's all you know nothing's clicking That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That means you just keep going real slow. And this is another area where slow is real important. And then when you get to the end of the ten minutes, the alarm goes, Well, it's been ten minutes. You breathe real deep a couple of more times and you might want to end with the Lord's Prayer or a simple statement of gratitude that you've been given this day and you're not drinking or using. Now, if you do that on a regular basis, and by the way, the big book can be read like that. You know, the, the Long Island phone directory can be read like that. You know? <laughs> the purpose slowing down. Now, it says here, you know, when, when you, you're asking to hear, you know, what's God's will and so forth. Well, what happens if you're learning how to, to pray like that? What are you going to hear? Well, you probably, you probably won't hear anything during that time of prayer. You might, but you probably won't. But what will happen is you'll go to a meeting two days later and the topic will be your obsession, <laughs> you know, that's what will happen. Or all of a sudden you'll meet someone who has exactly your problem or you'll be in the Safeway market buying broccoli and you'll overhear two people talking about your situation and how you can solve it and they'll even know they're doing it. What you do is you're getting ready to hear someone be of service to you, someone help you, someone give you an answer. And before we're just too blind and too busy to notice. Prayer is a wonderful way of slowing down, and I think making a decision to pray regularly is making a decision to waste time with God, which is almost un-American, because we like being productive, and one of the things we don't like about prayer is we don't seem to are doing anything. Well, you're not. You're learning how to receive, and, and it's a school. Prayer is a school, and you learn in prayer lots about yourself and lots about the movements of your own soul. Some people I know who take this kind of stuff very seriously keep a prayer journal where they keep track of their distractions and the movements of their soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, just so something they can, they can refer back to or ideas that occurred to them.
1: You
0: know? It's nice stuff. Well, what we pray for here, it says right in the book, is praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. So what's God's will Ah, Well, I'll tell you This book called the Bible Which is not a book but a library (laughs) Is filled with women and men Struggling exactly with that issue You know, what's God's will? And the book tells us something about it (laughs) The book says on page 133 We are sure God wants us to be happy Joyous and free. That's God's will for us. And also, there's a funny line in here that I think, um, you know, coming out of Akron, Ohio, white males in the 1930s need to be productive and um, during the depression. So they have a line in here that says, so we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Practical, right? <laughs> it's not just that cheerfulness and laughter feel good. They couldn't say that. It's useful to be cheerful <laughs> and laughter. You know, productive stuff, America. Um, <laughs> I thought one of the reasons, by the way, I mentioned earlier about the financial security and stuff. One of the reasons I love Alcoholics Anonymous is because Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith never got rich off this program. Bill Wilson, after he got sober, never held down a steady job. He had to rely on his friends for years, and it embarrassed him to tears. And he'd keep on coming up with schemes, and they'd never work. You know, I love that. And Dr. Bob was a proctologist that shook a lot. Um, <laughs> the problem with happy, joyous, and free, if you try to be happy, joyous, and free, it's not going to happen. That that's the paradox though. Go to Disneyland sometime and look at all the people trying to be happy. Oh. You know, you're standing in line waiting for that 10 seconds of thrill, you know? <laughs> happy joyous and free and you should probably look those words up in a dictionary when you get a chance these are results of doing god's will people who do god's will are happy joyous and free there is uh one of the the saints of of uh, uh, the christian church says that uh, joy is the infallible sign of god's presence and usually a person who is joyful would not tell you that. But if you know a woman or man who is truly joyful, God's present in some way on that person. You know, there's an intent. Now, what if they aren't churchgoers? Pay attention to that. Is it interesting how big God is? You know? <laughs> um, what else is true? Um, Happy, joyous, and free. Well, what's God's... I, I, I have a couple of suggestions on God's will. I do. Um, I think God's will has a lot to do with choice. We have to make choices. What's God's will for us? Well, rule number one. I think that very frequently God's will is possible. Let's start with that. Now, that surprises most of us right there. If it is impossible, you don't have to do it. Okay? Is that a new thought?
1: <laughs>
0: al do you hear that? <laughs> to dream the impossible dream. We used to, that's the al theme song. I mean, we thought that was real life. That's not real life. That's Hollywood, you know, and it's real. Di- you, God's will is possible. Okay. Number two, God's will is reasonable, usually, Amen. this is why you need to sponsor with common sense. What's God's will for me? All right. Choices. Well, um, uh, I'm not sure whether I should move to Kansas or move to Maine. What's God's will for me? Well, I'll stand by the freeway, and if the third car that goes by is blue, I'll know it's Kansas. And if the third car, that goes, you know, have you done that one? Um, That's not finding out God's will. That's superstition is what that is. I think what you need to do is take a look at Kansas and take a look at Maine and say, is it possible to go to both of them? All right. Is it reasonable to go to both of them? All right. Which one reasonably looks up? And then you try one. Let's try Kansas. And you find out, give it a decent try. And as you're working there and doing stuff there and living there, are you happy, joyous, and free? And if you are, it's a good sign it's God's will. And if you're not, what should you do if you make a mistake? Promptly admit it.
1: <laughs>
0: and then go do something else. There's a lot of risk taking involved in God's will. There really is. And we all make lots and lots of mistakes. And it's not, you just don't suddenly have this blinding vision where everything's clear. I mean, Things are cloudy. We make decisions without knowing all the data. People do that all the time. Welcome to the human race. A lot of us are real afraid to make changes because we're terrified of making a mistake. Well, listen. We have all made lots of big mistakes. You know, tell yourself this can only be a terrible mistake. You know? We've made lots of those. We'll continue to make lots of those and relax with it and go on with your life. And if it's a terrible mistake, admit it and go do something else. Should I be a doctor or a lawyer? Try one. Well, is it God's will that I go to Ethiopia and help with the famine. Tom, how's your Ethiopian? A little weak. (laughs) Chances are no, you know? I mean, maybe you don't have to go there. Uh, they talk a lot about, you know, growing where you're planted. Woody Allen says 80% of life is showing up. And I think that's about 80% of God's will. I think for most of us, God's will means show up to work on Monday on time. Pay your bills. Feed the dog, you know. Take some time off. Have lunch. That's a lot of God's will. And it's real boring, you know, unless you realize that you're doing, we're doing what's in front of us. In those times of desolation, in those times of consolation, what should a person who's trying to be spiritual do? Show up. Show up. Tell the truth. And you get better. My sponsor tells me that in his experience, in his experience, uh, spiritual growth works like this. You need a couple of people to talk to. Two or three or four people. You talk to them regularly. And when you talk with them, talk to them about the real things that are going on in your life. Not the bullshit. But the, re- the fears and the anxieties and the terrors and the things that keep you up at night. And, I, mean, the, I mean, the stuff that you don't share. The real stuff that's going on. All right. And when you talk with these people regularly, do it without beating yourself up. I'm no good. I'm <clears throat> a creep. I should have tried harder. It was my mistake. Don't do that. Don't beat yourself up and don't let yourself off the hook. Oh, it was all their fault. I mean, <laughs> simply tell the truth. And if you do that regularly with three or four people, you find you grow spiritually you go through these things. They don't destroy you and you don't drink. But if you keep secrets or if you throw all your energy into defending yourself or beating yourself up, you stay sick for a long, long time. A couple of years ago, I got involved in a situation that I have condemned people for for years. And when I was involved in it, I said, well, I'm the exception to the rule. You know? (laughs) I mean, I can do this. I mean, I I know I can do this. I can get away with it. I mean, it's just better. And I had... But all as I was doing it, as my head was doing all this fancy footwork, my stomach kept on going... (laughs) (laughs) And what I did was I kept, as I was involved in it, defending myself to the max, I, I talked to my sponsor and a couple other people about this and found out that I was not the exception to the rule. You know, this doesn't work for me either. And, and I was able to walk through it without dying of embarrassment. And admit mistakes were made. And, pe- and pain was caused. You know? And some confidences were broken. And it was awful. And we walked through it. And, and I'm very grateful to the fact that I had a couple of people to talk to. Um, well, what about just me and God in the room? The only difficulty with that is God doesn't usually say bullshit. What God usually says is, "Well, give it a try." You know, you know. I mean, uh, I think in many, many ways, my understanding of God is God is the perfect alimon. Perfect alimon. If you need to cut off your foot, God will say, "Cut off your foot." You know, and God will let you get real sick and tired of being sick and tired, and God just God loves a lot, and and uh, it's like the story of the father in, in the prodigal son story. Uh, that father most willing to be of assistance to both children, but both children were busy being creeps, and the father left them be creeps. You know? God is a perfect element. You need a woman or man you can stare in the eye with and talk directly to. Why? Because that's the way people function. Everybody needs someone to talk to. The pope himself has a confessor. Now I've applied for the job.
1: <laughs>
0: but it's true. You know, this is why I mean it's kind of, I find it that we, we sometimes, even in Alcoholics Anonymous and al create gurus, and, and that's spooky stuff. My understanding of the program is that the highest rank you get here is sober. And people with 200 years sobriety, and people... What's real is you're not drinking today. That's what's real. And there are some people with four and five years sobriety who are real healthy people, and there are some people with 20 and 30 years sobriety that are a mess. You know? Length of time means nothing. It's quality of time. And do you work the steps? You know, do you work... I mean, in fact, when I go to meetings, I, I get real... I have walked out of AA meetings. I mean, I know people who are so well, they haven't. But um, I mean, I have gotten to some meetings, and it was just this... Ex- We're supposed to get together and share experience, strength, and hope. Some places get together and share experience, weakness, and despair, you know. I don't need that, you know. Um, Especially during bleak times, I really need to hear the other stuff. There was one meeting I went to. I was sober under a year, and it was a young people's meeting. And uh, I showed up late, of course, and and kind of sat in the back. And and everyone was talking about how much they loved each other. That was the theme. And uh, it occurred to me halfway through the meeting that everyone in that room, had slept with everyone in that room (laughs) but me. (laughs) So I walked out. (laughs) You know, stuff like that. So, um, but I I have to go to meetings where people talk about recovery. And the process... Recovery is progressive. And I need to hear people talk about experience and strength. And I don't need drunk You know, I really don't. I was... I was at a meeting a while ago and this character who's been sober for over 20 years talks about his last week drinking. (laughs) I'm not interested. Thank you. You know, I mean, um, I I would love to have heard about what it was like to be 20 years sober. What's going on (coughs) today, gang? You know? Uh, But that's a quirk of mine. (sighs) Praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. I think um, a lot of us discover God's will sometimes in fear and trembling, and it's risky. And a lot of times when we make big changes, we find that it's real stressful. And a lot of times God's will consists of making changes, letting go of old stuff and going somewhere else. New occupations, new jobs, new relationships. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and others, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I think our process is one of waking up, spiritual awa- waking up inside. I'm a slow waker-upper. Uh, some people wake up real fast. Um, I get a little nervous around them. I mean, even physically. I... Uh, for a while in college, I had a roommate who, when the bell would go off, he was doing push-ups before the bell would finish, and I sued for divorce. I, it made me real crazy. I mean, I, I like the kind of, I need about, well, when, when my life is fairly normal, an hour or two of just, you know, buffer zone, you know, before I dash into the day. Um, well, it's true on the program for me, too. I'm continually waking up. And it is an ongoing process of waking up. And it's like an onion. I mean, you get one skin peeled off and another one is there and that gets peeled off. And issues get a little different and people get a little different. And they, they, and you deal with a lot of problems all the time. And I'm one of, I don't think we solve problems. Not real ones. I think we balance them. And I think with most of the problems in my life, there are healthy tensions. You know? and, and when the tensions are maintained... I'm in pretty good shape. You know, it's the need to be with others and the need to be alone. That's a healthy tension. You know, which one's right? They both are. You know, find out which one works for you best. Um, the need to uh, be attending lots of meetings and the need to be working a program, you know, on my... Healthy tension. You know, the we need to be working on myself, my, the need to be working with other people. Healthy tension. Uh, my integrity, my relationship with an organization. A healthy tension. My needs and wants versus the needs and wants of other people in my life. A healthy tension. And we balance those. Sometimes we give more to one and sometimes we give more to the other. But there's a balance. And and the more awake I get, the more I realize that. And the awakening occurs as a result of these steps. A couple of years ago, I had the great good fortune to be involved with my um, I first shrink sober, as a matter of fact, Leonard, he and I um, took a class from the Orthodox rabbi of Berkeley. Now the Orthodox rabbi was no screening liberal, I assure you, I mean, it was <clears throat> although he had a beard, um, and and he would teach classes like on Tuesday nights, and we'd go there, and his father was a rabbi, and his father was a rabbi, and his, it was way back there. And he was telling me his grandfather was a rabbi in a little town in uh, Russia where everyone were, you know, farmers and peasants and, and uh, could read and write but In his congregation, there are two Nobel Prize winners and 17 university professors. Wow. You know, he's just quite amazing, you know. And just the same little, you know, family line, the same little congregation, only the circumstances have changed dramatically. Anyway, we'd go and, and he'd talk about a lot of stuff. I figure, and he knew I was a priest, uh, I figure on that anything I learn about Judaism, I'm learning about my own faith. Because, you know, not only was Jesus Jewish, but so was his mother, which comes as a big surprise to, you know, Christian anti-Semites. But, I mean, you have to reconcile them. Um, So learning about, you know, the the history of Judaism and and how all the Hebrew scriptures work and the interpretation, how the rabbis see things. So we'd go once a week, and on one occasion, um, uh, this woman... uh, uh, Ask the rabbi a question. This rabbi, by the way, he's one of those people who is joyful. There's another Christian saint, by the way, named Irenaeus. He's fourth century from the Middle East. And Irenaeus says that um, the glory of God is the person fully alive. That's God's glory. A fully alive human being. That's what we're about. I think that's what sobriety's about. Back to the rabbi. The rabbi, um, as a teacher, what was so impressive? It wasn't just that he was bright. I know a lot of bright folks, and it wasn't just that he taught well. I know a lot of people that teach well, and you know some bright people can't teach well at all, and some of the best teachers aren't very bright. You know, it's funny how, but bright and taught very well. But also, he treated every person in that class, and some of the people in that class were nuts. As a teacher, I really respect that because I think that is the mark of a big soul when you can do that. I mean, even the craziest question. he was real gentle with them. Okay. Anyway, this one person asked a question one night. She said, Rabbi, what is a blessing? Now, I have quick answers for stuff like that, because I taught kids for years. And I would say something like, well, a blessing is the good housekeeping seal of approval. You know, next. Next. Um, (laughs) Rabbis, however, do not give quick answers they answer with questions like I mentioned the other day or or they tell stories. And the rabbi when asked with that question stopped for a second and said when God created the universe Moses writes that God did it in six days and at the end of each day of creation God looked at what God had made and said this is good. So God created dry land out of the water and said it was good. And God created the big light and the little light. Moon and sun said it was good in the stars. And God created fish and said they were good. And cows and goats and avocados. you know. <laughs> said they were all good. And on the last day of creation, God created the human being and did not say the human being was good. And the rabbi said, Any conclusion?
1: <laughs>
0: and one of the people in the class said, People are no good.
1: <laughs> and the
0: rabbi said, That's a possible conclusion. And that's why it's a bad translation. He said. In English, the word good means too many things. You have, a, This is a good book. The good book. Um, this is a goodbye. By this, goodbye. Um, this is a good person. Um, this is you know, a good pencil. This is a good dinner. This is a good movie. What is he said in English? It, it, good has too many meanings, and a lot of them have moral overtones. And he said, "Let's not use English." He says it's in Hebrew, and then he looked at me and said, "Which is what God spoke." <laughs> <laughs> In Hebrew, God said, this is Tov, T-O-V, as in Victor, Tov. God looked at what God had made and said, it is Tov. And the rabbi says, what does Tov mean? Tov means something is complete. Tov means something is entire. Tov means something is whole. Tov means it is exactly the way it's supposed to be. The moon and the sun are created Tov. They can't be any different. Earth is created tov. Fish are created tov. Cows are created tov. You can't make them more cow, you know. But he said, people, people aren't created complete. People are created incomplete. People are created with holes. And he said, in the course of a lifetime, what is a person supposed to do? A person is supposed to get bigger. A person is supposed to fill in some of the holes. A person is supposed to become more of a human being. You know? We're born male; we're supposed to become men. We're born female; we're supposed to become women. You know, it's a whole process of growth in life. We're born, you know, male, female. We're supposed to grow into human beings. And he said, as you travel down life. Death road, You know, as you're on the path, as you're on the journey, as you're on your pilgrimage, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. Anything that gets behind you and pushes you forward. Anything that gets in front of you and grabs onto you and drags you ahead. Anything that gets down deep inside of you and kicks and shoves and pushes until there's more room anything that does that is a blessing he said and lots of times blessings don't feel good and lots of times you don't know their blessings until much later you look back at this situation that you knew would kill you and you found out that that opened doors for you that you never even knew were there So it's real important, he said, to realize how blessings work. And then he told some stories about that. But when he said that, that was the first time that it occurred to me why alcoholism was the greatest blessing of my life. Because it found me to be very narrow and very brittle and very rigid, and very judgmental. I was a racist, and a segregationist, and a sexist, and anyone that didn't agree with me, I had no use for whatsoever. It found me a man like that, and pulled me into an area where it's better, <laughs> you know, it's better. And I'm bigger because of it, and and therefore I'm grateful for the pain. Now, I think pain is part of the program. Suffering is optional, but pain is part of the program, and it's you can walk through it. You can walk through it. Many of us exclaimed, "What in order?" I can't go through with it. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: That's barely English, you know. I've never heard anybody say that. And I've heard a lot of English spoken for years. But people spontaneously don't go, What an order. I can't go through with it. What what we say is, Oh, shit. (laughs) That's what we say. (laughs) But in books written in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, you can't be that explicit, so they translate oh shit into what an order, I can't go through with it. The next time you're at a public rest restroom and feel the need to write on the walls, what an order, I can't go through with it, and everyone will know who's been there, you know. <laughs> a sober alcoholic was here I'm so glad Okay. do not be discouraged the book says that do not be discouraged it also says earlier a line that I had I had just missed for a long time it says that folks that have trouble here are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous. Developing a manner of living is what we're about. I thought you grasped onto one thing and held onto it tight forever. You grasp and develop, which means you have to try some stuff and let some other stuff go and experiment and attempt new things and read a new book and meet people you never would have talked to if you were living a million years. Developing a manner of living Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. Absolutely true. None of us have. We are not saints. Now that's good to know, you know. Um, this, by the way, is not a program for saints. This is a program for self-obsessed, self-destructive, compulsive crazy people who are amazed that they can get from breakfast to lunch without having a drink or a major obsession about a person. I tell Al-Anon folks, we are one person away from an obsession, (laughs) we really are, and it is just as awful as having that morning beer, you know, just to kind of get started, I sure am. We are not, If you want to be a saint, there are other places that will willingly take your money. But I mean, this just do that there, please. You know? The point is, the point is, the point is, we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. Some people aren't willing to grow on spiritual lines. Some people want to plunge right into perfection and judgment. You know? Uh, let them. You know? Uh, But we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. Practice makes progress. Not perfect. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Spiritual perfection, in my denomination, we did a lot of stress on you got to be perfect at the age of nine. And that created some real unhappy, crazy people for years. You know, be perfect. Um, Progress is our most important product. You know, and you see it you know, as we go along. Um, our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, agnostics only get one chapter.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and our personal adventures. Good words. They could have said dramas or tragedies. It's adventures. It's kind of like Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, you know. Our personal adventures before and after. You know, I mean, the adventure for me started after I got here. You know? Beforehand, it was just this very boring nightmare. <laughs> Make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, and C, that God could and would if God were sought. Not found, not understood, not defined, not possessed, but sought. And that's the good news. And what we continue to do is seek God and seek God's will for us. And for that we need our own honesty and each other. Cause that's how we stumble through this business. And that's the only way I know how to do it. So there. I think we should end with the Lord's Prayer.
1: Gracias. Wow.